Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I'm so happy Georgia's in here with me and she just fell asleep. She was making a commotion chewing on two Nyla bones at the same time. Well, I'm jealous of Georgia. It is dark. It's literally pitch black. As I look out my window, we are recording this at 6 a.m. So sorry. (laughs) It was my fault, (laughs) y'all. Well, it's that mid-semester insanity that... Just literally, you literally showed me your calendar. You're going full tilt tomorrow, Thursday. I literally, um, I've been getting to work before 7 a.m. so I can get in my practice time because otherwise I just don't get it in. And then I will start teaching from 9 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. And then at 7.30, there's a concert. And so I will literally like work for like 14 hours straight tomorrow. <laughs> And not every day is like that, certainly, but... um, At this point of the semester, like, from here to the end is... How much can we cram in? Yeah, and every year, every semester, I say to myself, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take a manageable load of things to take on. But then things pop up here and there and you're like, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. That sounds awesome. And so then you're like, yeah, definitely. And then there's like six of those. (laughs) Or you know what I find, and I say this every semester, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast before, at least for me, I find there is enough time for me to practice as much as I need to, to be ready for my performances. Or... There is enough time for me to take care of all my like work tasks, computer time, but I cannot have both. That's right. Like I have, I have to choose between those two. So if I'm like, yeah, today was a great practice day. I'm probably like overwhelmed looking at my to-do list. Or (laughs) if I got a bunch of things off my to-do list, I'm probably neglecting my instrument and my read cases in shambles. I don't know about you, but my mindset is really important in my practice session. Like if I'm thinking about the things on my to-do list, my practice session is garbage. 
I'm kind of the opposite. I've been trying, especially this academic year, to practice, uh, to literally, um, to uh, prioritize practice over uh-huh. tasks. Because in, in uh-huh. historically, I've loved that dopamine hit of like it's off the list, it's off the list, it's off the list. Well, it's but, so seductive. You're like, oh, oh look, I am. So- so good at my job. <laughs> well, but then it would make me like, I don't know, kind of like resentful. Like the whole point of this is to be yeah, a bassoon yeah. artist and teacher. Um, so I've been, like I said, getting to work early, which I'm not trying to like, oh, I'm sacrificing so much. I am an early bird. I like doing that. I like being at the building when it's quiet and no one's there. That is like a nice thing for me. Um but I've been, yeah, starting the day with two hours of practice. And then I can kind of, I feel like I've paid that bill. Mm-hmm. And then kind of however the rest of the day goes is fine. But if tasks keep me from the bassoon, then I'm like, and get like an attitude about it. So that has been helpful starting the day with practice because I'm like, well, even if, the day gets, you know, out of my hands or things come up. I started with two hours. That's yeah. pretty good. That's fantastic. I originally made my schedule so that I don't go in to my office at USM until after lunch. Um, so that I have four hours in the morning to do my read making and my practicing. And, you know, when we came back from tour, I really had to cannibalize that time to make up lessons because I was already making up lessons on the weekends and there's only mm-hmm. so many hours that you have available to make yep. up lessons on top of the lessons you're already teaching. So I have been missing that time so much. Yeah. It, it's really, I really need it. Like I need a long chunk. Mm-hmm. Like I can make do with like a 30 minute chunk here and a 20 minute chunk there, but my brain loves a four hour block yeah, where I can just sink in and not worry, like not have like a quarter of my mind thinking about what's waiting outside my door in five minutes. Thousand percent get that. And so I actually have combated that by making a sign (laughs) for my office door. You've seen it. It is, um, I put it in one of those clear plastic sheets so that it doesn't get beat up or anything. And it's a giant stop sign. And it literally wow. says, stop. It's in color. It's, it's a in red color. Stop I printed sign. it in color. It's red. And then underneath <laughs> it says, right now, I'm trying to practice and or focus. So please do not knock. And then it puts my email and my office hours. And if I am practicing, that is on my door. And (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) Okay. That is a beautiful, beautiful boundary. And I am so supportive of it. It makes me laugh and I love it so much. For me, that would not work because my students are so sweet that they would sit outside in the hallway if I got lost in time and like didn't open my door at their lesson time, they would sit there for the full hour. Well, yeah, you got to take it down when it's time to do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Like I need to not, I need, to, need not to get lost. Be there. In yeah, I need hands. to get lost. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, 
Speaking of tour, one cool thing that has kind of uh, that we did while you were on tour that we kind of kept under wraps that now is like out is we did some updated headshots. We did some updated branding. If y'all have not checked it out, you got to get on our social media and actually our new website. Our new website is so fantastic. I love it. Who created that? Um, I don't know, just some random name, Jackie Wilson. <laughs> oh, that was me. It was me. <laughs> but you know what? Our iTunes icon has not updated and Ever. I did that correctly. And so. Well, it still has the original logo. I think that Becky made. No, it has, oh, it has the oh. other one, but so hmm, I'm going to have to figure that out. So if you listen on iTunes, you have to go Sorry. somewhere else right now to find <laughs> to see the new one. Okay, so this uh, branding update has kind of a funny story because our week in Pullman was fast and furious. Well, and- first, ever since okay. you grew your hair out, you have been True. wanting the logo to reflect what you look like. And I've been like, girl, I have to update every single thing on every single platform. And it was like a a year and a half that I was like, give me, give me three months. Give me three months, please. Just (laughs) what would happen? What would happen if I cut my hair off again right now? It, it, it's not happening. Or actually we could go back to the old one. Yeah. (laughs) If you dye your hair pink, you can, you know, get in Microsoft Paint and you can just paint your head pink. <laughs> it's actually not that much work, but yeah, I, I kept kicking the can because I was like, please, no. But yeah, okay. So then we finally were together. We wanted updated headshots and all that. Right. So we were like scheduled to the max that week. And um, we... We were like, okay, well, we wanted to get, like, to get, take new pictures together because those ones that we had, I had short hair and they were six years old, almost seven years old now. Yes, but it was cute that we matched and we're in the same location. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as a, as a like, brand, <laughs> it was nice to have them together and even individually in the we same place. Like, this is our only chance. But we didn't even have enough time to like book a photographer. So we <laughs> did what we always do, which is go, Chris, <laughs> Chris, can you help us with something? <laughs> well, and we really wanted to do it in Pullman because Pullman has these fabulous murals and including this rainbow wall that you really wanted to have yeah. a headshot in front Every of. Every time we drove by it, I was like, I want to take a picture by that. Because we talked about getting them done in Kansas City or something like that. And yeah, so basically we were just like, Chris, you have a nice camera. You do some photography. Emphasis on the foe. Um, (laughs) Which you just (laughs) follow us around downtown Pullman and let us have a like America's Next Top Model moment. And he was like, uh, yes. Because the poor guy... He produced the whole album for us. So he was busy every second. We were busy, but he wasn't like, I'm recording an album. This is going to be great for my CV. It was just purely selflessness. And then we were like, how about one more thing? (laughs) And he, I, I manhandled him 
into uh into making a steak yes he cooked for us several nights he's i made him refill my gin and soda (laughs) at least once (laughs) he's the best he's the best so then it is what 7 a.m yes we went out there very early because you had an 8 a.m we were like class yep we have to do this there is one hour block at 7 a.m. in which we can do this. And poor Chris was in the middle of marching season. So he was like getting home at like 9 p.m. every night and then tromping out with us at 7 in the morning. And he took a bunch of pictures and uh, they turned out phenomenal. They turned out really well. Yeah. I was like, like, and it's just with our, like, we have a nice camera, but actually the setting on the iPhone ended up being, like, the easiest and... Portrait mode, yeah. Yes, it was just, it's really high quality, and we were like, okay, we'll take this free headshot photo shoot situation (laughs) we should not brag on chris too much on the podcast because people are going to start flying him out to do everything yeah this is not a like sister wives situation (laughs) sorry he's taken (laughs) (laughs) but it turned out really good i actually sent a couple shots to my friend kat who is a legitimate photographer and i was like would you do anything to these she's like i mean i'd crop it yeah and I was like cool (laughs) (laughs) we're good to go um and when you're on our social media to check out our new branding because we are businesswomen you know um the the ultimate business CEO people um you may also see that we are having our annual Halloween read decorating contest Galit Talk to the people about the prizes um, and entries are due 1015. So if you're listening to this episode, as soon as it comes out on 1015, you've got until midnight to get <laughs> your entry in. So quick, quick, quick. But yeah, tell them, tell them what we're giving away. Okay. So we have four prizes to give out. We have the popular vote winners for oboe and bassoon so that's two and then we have podcast choice winners for oboe and bassoon because a lot of the times jackie and i wish that we could like after the popular vote count is counted we're like oh but this other one was so good i love this one and we want to be control freaks yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um our amazing sponsors, Chemical City Reads and Barton Kane, are offering a $50 gift card for each of the four prizes. So that's Chemical City Reads and Barton Kane. $50 gift card for four prizes, and Barton Kane is throwing in a free t shirt. So get to getting, because the getting is good. So if you win, that's $100 in podcast or in double read merchandise and you can wear a Barton Kane shirt while you're ordering all your cool double read supplies. Just enough time to order a bunch of cane for finals week. Listen, I don't know what I would do without either of those companies. Uh. (laughs) They have saved my butt so many times just on an individual level. Absolutely. Yeah. Like this is 
so exciting and we love partnering with them so much so you know get creative get those juices flowing the reads do not have to work no it's to be scared yeah i had someone write and ask like okay can it be an english horn read yes anything it can be cane it can be it just has to be a read or something that was once a read and is now (gasps) back from the dead Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Melanie Rothman, oboist in the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We would love to hear how your journey to the oboe started. How did you come to this instrument? So when I was about nine years old at school, um, the teachers had reported to my parents that I'd been misbehaving because basically I was finishing my work in class quite quickly and getting bored. So they moved me into another school, which was supposedly meant to be a bit more challenging, which it was actually, where there were a lot more subjects on offer than you would have in sort of normal state school in the UK. So that meant that there were music lessons, which was something that wasn't accessible to me before. And I arrived at the school and I really didn't know anything about music. And almost all the girls played an instrument or sang or had some kind of music lessons. And I was the only one who didn't really do that, more or less. And I couldn't read music. I didn't know what a clarinet was or a cello was. So I was really, you know, arriving to this place with no idea. And on a Thursday lunchtime, there was an orchestral rehearsal. And obviously I ended up more or less alone outside in the playground being one of the only people who didn't play anything. So my nine-year-old self used to go and listen to the orchestral rehearsal, which must have been um, quite something, (laughs) listening to an orchestra of girls under the age of 12. Um, (laughs) I'm actually quite curious to see what that would have sounded like now. Yeah, so I went along to the rehearsals and kind of thought, well, you know, if I want to 
have my Thursday lunchtime with other people and also understand what happens in music lessons. Maybe I should play an instrument and that'd be a way to kind of catch up with everyone else. Um, so I had a look around the orchestra and thought, yeah, I don't want to play a violin. I don't want to do what everyone else is doing. Um, and I noticed there was one girl who played the French horn and one girl who played the oboe. And I knew that the girl playing the oboe was going to be leaving the school in a few months. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> That was how I chose the over. So I really had no idea, to be honest, about what it entailed, how it sounded. All I knew was it was a wind instrument and it was a bit different to the clarinet. That's basically all I knew. Um, and then I was walking along one day with a friend of mine who'd dented her flute and had to go and see her teacher. And we had a chat and I said, yeah, I'm thinking about playing an instrument as well, maybe the oboe. And she said, oh, yeah, I think it would really suit you. So then I went home and asked my dad, uh, can you please write a letter into the school um, to ask if I could have oboe lessons, please? And he was like, where the hell has this come from? <laughs> and he thought it was just going to be a phase um, because I was one of those kids that kind of, you know, went from one thing to another. I never really stuck with anything for too long. Again, this thing of getting bored quickly. Um, but luckily with the oboe, I didn't get bored quickly at all. And actually within a few months I more or less knew that's what I wanted to do and yeah so that's that's how I ended up starting the oboe I promised that when I did have my first couple of lessons I then was a little bit more aware about what it sounds like <laughs> I relate to that so much because you know there's it's, there's just something about the level of difficulty and the the elusiveness of mastering the oboe that manages to keep our attention. You know, it's, it's just slippery enough to get away from you if you don't pay attention to it for five minutes. So yeah, yeah that seems like a really powerful motivator. Definitely. And I, I remember also hearing at the time, you know, um, teachers around me saying, Oh yeah, the oboe you've chosen, all oh, that's difficult. And lots of people give that up within a year. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be a, a giver upper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I stuck at that and I worked really hard at it. And actually, that was it was good for me to have you know a thing where I didn't just move on straight away to something else. Where I really stuck at it and worked hard and enjoyed it as well. Obviously, otherwise mm -hmm. I wouldn't have carried on if I hadn't enjoyed it. And obviously, there's obviously that element that yeah, I'm good at this, so I enjoy it and I enjoy it because I'm good at it. You know. It's mm -hmm. part of that as well mm -hmm. yeah especially when you're that age I think that's quite important that you feel that you're good at it as well yeah. mm -hmm. can you talk us through um more of your educational training and then your professional journey of how you got to where you are today uh yeah so I started off with a teacher called Hilary Dennis who was teaching at the school I attended in South London and around that time, I started doing um, sort of national children's orchestra and things like that. And I ended up going to the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, which was an amazing training ground. Um, it's basically one of these orchestras where they uh, pick young musicians from across the country. Mm. And we were a big section of in the oboes. We were a section of eight people. There were also eight flutes eight clarinets, 10 horns. I mean, a really massive size orchestra, but an amazing force. And we had three courses a year and I did that for three years and they really treated us like young professionals and they had top conductors coming in 
top professionals. So that was really a sort of um, a time in which I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do orchestra stuff that's that's really cool and really enjoyable and the sort of collective feeling of um preparing something with a whole group of friends mm-hmm. um so at that point i then started to apply for music colleges and i attended the royal academy of music in london for a short time and then kind of decided that i wanted something a little bit different so i left to france and i studied with nora sismondi for a year um, she was then the principal over of the Orchestre Nationale de France, but now she's at the Swiss Romande in Geneva. So I was with her for a year. And then I did my bachelor with David Walter at the Conservatoire Supérieur, so the famous Paris Conservatoire, let's say, CNSM. Uh, and after I did my bachelor with David, I did an Erasmus um, exchange and then my master's with Stéphane Chely. Mm-hmm. at the <clears throat> Mozarteum University in Salzburg. He's one of my favorite oboists. Yeah, mine too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of mine too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also an amazing teacher and fantastic human being. And after that, I did one year of a new music academy called the Ensemble Moderne Academy, which is linked with the Ensemble Moderne, which is one of the specialist new music ensembles. And then finally, I did a postgraduate in Stuttgart with Christian Schmidt. So mm-hmm. lots of studies, lots of moving around, lots of different teachers, but um, all of them were extremely valuable in different ways. Um, when I look back at my um, educational journey, I often have these like crystal clear aha moments of, mm-hmm. oh, this is what they were talking about or um, kind of like a, a moment of enlightenment, like, Oh, I got it now. Can you share with us any of uh, those aha moments from your really superior education? Mm, I think one of those aha moments was, uh, was I remember when I was studying in, in Paris with David, him kind of reiterating quite often that I should just be myself um, which at the time I didn't really understand what he meant by that. Um, and much further down the line, uh, in terms of trying to find an orchestral job and doing auditions, I've started to see how important that is, that I'm really true to myself and I don't pretend stylistically or otherwise to be someone else or to fit into a certain box because I think that's the thing I should do. Um, so I would say that was an aha thing that came much later. That sounds extremely empowering. Yeah, David was pretty incredible in that sense. Like he had a, an enormous respect for each of his students um, and has quite a unique teaching style. And so, you know, there was a lot of lessons where we would like literally play through a whole piece and then talk about it at the end. So um, an approach that's quite unique, really. But for me at that time, it was really good for me. So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about how you cultivated that individuality? Um, I'm not trying to be controversial, but um, I think that mm-hmm. is something that I hear a lot in European playing is an emphasis on a, a soloistic quality and a unique voice. And worldwide, those are the the players that we tend to venerate and that when I'm listening, excite me the most. But in the United States... It can be um, homogeneity 
can really be a priority. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's something that like individually I place a lot of value in, like that I admire these European players so much. And I would be really interested in how one intentionally cultivates that or, or what you felt pedagogically empowered you to do that kind of more the the detailed process of of how you develop that skill right I mean if I speak for myself personally I would say that having studied in the UK and then France and then Austria and Germany just having those four different countries teachers who came from basically three three different nationalities that already in itself meant that I had to in a way kind of pick and choose what I wanted for myself and um, stylistically Mm -hmm. Um, I think some people might find that really confusing and maybe when my when I was much younger when I first started studying it was kind of confusing but I was also really driven by the French style of oboe playing at that time Mm -hmm. and and so I think just sort of naturally if you like over the the years that I studied I kind of took on things that I wanted from each of those individual styles mm-hmm. um, and that kind of made me who I am now. And in, ter- in terms of otherwise um, individual approach uh, mm-hmm. to my playing, it's quite tricky to answer, but I'd say just having conviction, conviction in what I want to do with my phrases, conviction in how I want my sound to be and how I like it to be and what feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I would say about that, really. I think if you've had as many oboe lessons of, as I've had and, and <laughs> experienced as many teachers as, as I've had, that's sort of something that kind of naturally comes over time. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that any of it was like a conscious decision, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's keep going. So you walked us through your educational journey. Let's let's uh, keep going through the timeline. What came next? Uh, so when I was doing my postgraduate in Stuttgart with Christian Schmidt, um, I was taking a lot of orchestral auditions, but also freelancing a bit. So that's kind of where things started to heat up um, with orchestra work. Um, so I worked with um, some ensembles like Bergen Philharmonic in Norway and um, the city with Birmingham Symphony Orchestra in the UK, sort of on a freelance basis. Mm-hmm. And then I won a job as solo over with the Hessen State Theatre Orchestra, which is in Wiesbaden in Germany. And Wiesbaden is the capital city of Hessen State. Um, not many people outside of Germany know Wiesbaden, um, but it's um, a fairly major city near to Frankfurt and to Mainz. Uh, it's an old spa town, so I... Worked there for about a year and a half in the theatre orchestra, so mostly opera things, dotted with some uh, symphonic uh, concerts in the year. And then I worked for a few months with um, the Dusburger Philharmonica, um, which is slightly further north in Germany. That's a very industrial part of Germany, so very, very different uh, kind of city, different kind of people and mentality. I had a really great time there. I was only there for four months um on a contract but um that was a sort of similar situation with it being mostly opera and some symphony orchestra stuff and during that time I continued to do auditions uh as well for um 
uh, more long-term contracts. Um, so I was very lucky in that um, in May uh, of this year, um, I won my what's now my current position in BR in a Bayerische Rundfunk Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. What an so, incre- that's so incredible. <laughs> Can you tell us about that audition? How did that day go? Um, you know what? This may sound sort of silly, but I actually had fun at the audition, which is kind of crazy to think about because auditions are horrible. Nobody likes them. <laughs> I certainly don't. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've done so many that haven't gone well or those that have gone well, but it didn't work out and that's a, another feeling entirely as negative feeling entirely um but actually when I went to that audition I made a priority for myself which was um whatever happens in terms of the position whether it gets given out or not whether I pass the first round second round or not doesn't matter as long as I play well enough that I'm satisfied with myself and that I make Stefan Schilly proud as my previous professor. Um, so I think that actually really helped me to play well because otherwise it could have easily been uh, a re- I mean, it is a high pressure situation in audition, especially in front of an orchestra of that kind of caliber. Um, and also an orchestra where I know quite a few people. Um, so that was is a very high pressure situation, but having that one focus, that was the thing that really helped me. And I was also just lucky with the conditions on the day. Um, I got there really early, earlier than I was technically allowed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought, you know, it's not going to hurt anyone if I if I stand outside for half an hour. You know, um, better just to be there really, really early, and be ready. And um, I we were given the numbers of who was going when on arrival and I got given number one and a lot of people don't like number one but I love number one because it means (laughs) I don't have to wait around (laughs) yeah because with the waiting around I get more and more nervous I get I hear more and more people around me and you know hearing how good everybody sounds does does put me off at an audition I'll be honest um Mm -hmm. I find it hard to stay confident so having number one was fantastic. Um, so I just went straight in. Good morning. <laughs> Here we go. Let's do it. Um, and the first round, I had to play quite a lot of repertoire. We all did. Um, quite full on, but also really nice to feel like, okay, I've got time to play and, and to show things and also maybe calm down if I feel nervous or something. So um so that was that that went nicely. I, I just felt like there was a really great energy in the room. You know, when you have that feeling sometimes at a concert or an audition where you have the impression that the people who are sitting there just want you to do well and just want it to be a nice day for them too. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's the feeling I had. Um, final round, I was the only one in the final round. Um, they requested uh, the Beethoven Trio together with a couple of colleagues that's fun uh, yeah it was so fun and honestly I was standing on the stage playing with them and I was just thinking wow <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> with these guys it feels so easy I want to do this every day and and I just I just felt comfortable which is not what you imagine 
in the final of an audition. You just imagine it as this super scary moment where you're still under so much stress and, and tension. And honestly, the tension was just all gone by that point. It was really, really unusually comfortable. So the audition day was just the best experience ever. Because then obviously after that, I got told that I got the job. So uh, so it was really just the best day. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I know I have COVID, but I'm going to start crying. <laughs> That's really interesting. It kind of reminds me what we were talking about with cultivating that individual voice because you would never see three solos and chamber music on a list here. And so mm-hmm. it it really seems like you're set up to succeed for having cultivated that individual voice. Like that's part of what they are auditioning you for. It's not just like, okay, stand and deliver, execute, uh this thing it's like okay we care to know your musical voice and your how you interpret something and you as a soloist um do you feel like that um cultivating as we spoke about before that kind of autonomous musical voice helped you to be successful in orchestral auditions yeah i would say so yeah especially in an orchestra like that that has a very specific vision for what they want to achieve i think that did yes help me for for my audition there, certainly. Um, in the rest of Germany, um, I think it just depends on the orchestra, really. The, the, thing, the thing, though, that I've come to see here is that um, German orchestras really like to feel like they have their identity and their personality and their sound. Mm-hmm. So I think there, are, there have also been auditions where I played well and they thought I played well and liked me, but my sound was just sort of not really fitting into their group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also an, another thing not to forget after auditions actually is maybe it wasn't that I played badly. Maybe it was just that I didn't fit into their ideal. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's been a really interesting thing for me, but I think it definitely helped in Munich. Yeah. Speaking of auditions, you were last year's grand prize winner of the 2021 Gile Fox competition. Can you talk to us about that experience? Yeah. So um, first of all, that was um, a super fun experience. Um, The repertoire was quite insane, (laughs) as to be expected with the Gile Fox competition. But I mean, really, really amazing um, stuff to get your teeth into the um, McAllister Grunge Concerto in particular was super fun to learn it was one of those pieces I also you know when I bought the music I had a look at it and I thought my goodness me and how the hell am I gonna play this <laughs> was one of those but that satisfaction of yeah I've re- I've worked hard on this um, and it's working and I'm managing to do this that was a really amazing feeling um so everything happened online because the conference couldn't happen in person because of COVID stuff. Um, so that was probably, I'd say, the thing that was the most difficult for me. So obviously the repertoire was tricky, all the all the usual stuff, preparation things. But finding a good enough venue uh, whilst COVID was happening, finding a pianist who had time for me, um, to rehearse all this very difficult repertoire that was tricky to put together um, and then having a good enough camera set up, recording equipment, all of that stuff 
was really tricky um, because also that that stuff costs money too. So there was um, a lot of support from the IDRS, which was brilliant. But just having to do all those things, those organizational things, was just an extra stress that you wouldn't have if you, you know, flew to a conference and played there. That would all be kind of done for you. So um, that was the thing that was really a big challenge for me. And then playing in front of the camera, recording the the concert more or less because I had to do it in one take um and having the feeling yeah I'm I'm performing at this big competition and this is the final and having that excitement I mean it's not quite the same when you've got just a, a camera on a stick in front of you <laughs> compared to you know a, a lovely smiling audience so um that was the biggest challenge for me was getting over that feeling of oh I don't like playing in front of a camera or I'd prefer to have an audience in front of me um so what I tried to do was actually get a couple of people in the room so I managed to get um a couple of friends and colleagues to sit in the room behind the camera just so I had more of a feeling of yes I'm I'm performing today and Brilliant. not yeah I'm just playing to the camera um and that was a really really formative experience for me really was because I felt like I was facing these challenges head on you know I mm-hmm. I feel nervous about playing to the camera. I feel nervous that my personality won't come across well enough or that I'll get so focused on my technique uh, because there is an audience in front of me for who I want to play music to. So that was really um, a big challenge, but a, a really good one to have done um, for sure. And um, finding out that I won the competition online was also quite weird. <laughs> I was sitting in a <laughs> sitting in, in a car at the time uh, on the way to, to pick up some pizza or something. I mean, it was <laughs> was like the weirdest way to find out you've won a big competition, um, but kind of funny in a way too. Um, but I, I mean, the nice thing was is that I could um, go to the IDRS this summer, so a year later, and meet people and have the feeling of 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 the conference and the excitement there and also you know seeing the gilet fox or the bassoons this year um and experiencing that on the other side was really really nice uh so i'm kind of glad i managed to catch up with some of that a bit later (laughs) um you've you've been successful and active in other competitions as well and so i wonder if we could hear a bit about um what you learn or gain from competitions. Like if someone Mm -hmm. is, uh, I I know we've heard countless stories of people going, oh, well, I bought the pieces and then I just decided not to, I I backed away from the edge. And so if someone's kind of waffling and deciding, um, should I go for it and do a competition? Um, Maybe what you feel you've gained or what competitions have to offer to a young musician. Um, Well, the thing that I'd say competitions are really fantastic for is, you know, preparing a lot of repertoire that you might not otherwise play. So discovering pieces, first of all. Uh, Secondly, for building up stamina, it's absolutely amazing because you usually don't play so many challenging pieces in succession like that. Um, And also just, you know, having this you know, weeks or months of preparation where it's like, okay, I've got these pieces to do and I want to play it to the absolute best of my ability and make it the most musically convincing I can. Um, There are rarely other opportunities where it's as intense as that is. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so after you've had, you know, a few months of preparing for a competition, maybe performing at the competition, maybe getting to a final or semi-final, the feeling of satisfaction, firstly, is really quite something. And the second thing is, is your technique will absolutely go forward. There's no way that it would go backwards. There's just no way. <laughs> because it's this incredible intense workout that you've been doing for ages I mean it's every time I've done a competition I've really felt the difference afterwards Mm. um yeah could we hear a little bit about like your practice routine or what that intense period of time looks like like tangibly so um especially for competition preparation I would kind of um write out a plan um, because there's so much repertoire to cover I would write like a two to three week plan of okay Monday the first I'm gonna do the first page of the first movement of x sonata and I'm gonna do the first page of the second movement of x concerto and just kind of organize it in that way so that I don't feel overwhelmed because you know, you could look at a list for a competition and think, oh, no, there's far too much repertoire. There's no way I can get through that. Of course you can get through it. It's just a question of organization in a way that feels bite-sized and doable. The mm-hmm. same also for memorizing something. If you have to memorize the Schumann Romances or the Strauss Concerto or whatever it is, same thing. I do exactly the same thing. I wrote myself out a little um, schedule for about, yeah, say three weeks period um, and then do my best to stick that as much as I can. And also being mindful of not setting myself too much per day, because I <laughs> have done that too in the past. I've set myself too much per day. So that's mm-hmm. one thing I do. And then once I feel like I've more or less gotten the pieces under my fingers, but not really at a performance level, I actually push myself to play it to people anyway. Um, I start oh. playing to friends and trusted people running through stuff, even when I feel uncomfortable with it. Uh, Some people would disagree with me with that method, but for me, it's like (laughs) ironing out the, uh, all the creases as soon as possible. So as soon as Mm -hmm. you start performing to people, you see, aha, okay, actually this section is not as bad as I thought it would be. And this section definitely needs a lot more work. So it's, it's really interesting to (laughs) start running through whilst you're still kind of learning things mm-hmm. and getting them ready rather than just leaving it till right at the end because you have right. better scope over, okay, what really, really needs to have priority and which doesn't. So I do that. And then um, nearer to the deadlines of the competitions um, or the dates, um, I will then start running through in a more sort of concert format, um, slightly more formally, including walking into the room, all that sort of thing. So that's how I would prepare prepare a competition specifically with my practice. Um, In terms of general practice, I don't do anything out of the ordinary. I start with scales and things, um, vocalises, stuff like that. And I love the Selner etudes, which are sort of... um, Oh, I love those. (laughs) Very basic, but really great for articulation, waking up the fingers. I do those almost every day. Um, sometimes I might rotate it with some other studies or or things, or I might um, pick out uh, a section of a sonata that's particularly challenging for the fingers and just play it through slowly with a metronome. 
or sometimes I just pick a random Bach cantata and practice it. So I like to kind of keep things on, on my toes a little bit as well, but I wouldn't say I do anything particularly unusual with my practice routines. Mm-hmm. Do you address in your preparation the mental side? You're obviously a fierce competitor. What do you do to, um, you know, strengthen your mind? Do you do anything specific or is that just all uh, tied into your organization beforehand? Mm, well, I would say that mental practice plays a big, big role for me. I do it a lot. I really do it a lot. I really like to sit down with my scores before I go to bed, even if it's just listening through with, an, with the recording I love or even listening through without the score. And then there's also um, a thing that uh, somebody taught me once, which I think is really awesome, is where you um, you sit down calmly in a chair close your eyes and you imagine yourself performing the whole concert or competition repertoire in one sitting. So you sit there and you think through the whole thing and you do it in a way where everything goes exactly how you want it to go. So you're sort of training your brain in advance. Okay, it's going to go this way. I'm going to walk on stage in this way and I'm going to feel this way. And my first note's going to sound like this. And you basically walk through the whole thing from a to z in your head exactly how you want it so that's a really really good tool um for being a fierce competitor (laughs) (laughs) it's just really funny to me because i i i i wouldn't describe myself as a competitive person i mean i i went into competitions for the challenge and because they're uncomfortable and because i don't like them that's actually it's true that's why I did it because I thought I need an extra push I need a goal I need something that is gonna make me a better oboist so yeah (laughs) I love it can we hear about a favorite memory that you have of a past performance yeah so there's there's one that um always sticks in my mind and it was actually back in youth orchestra days uh with the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain it was my first ever concert with them so I was about 16 and it was Britain War Requiem uh conducted by the late Sir Richard Hickox in St Paul's Cathedral in London I mean it was just insane I mean this amazing grandiose piece you know with two orchestras and a million soloists I mean it's really really something amazing piece just so much sound and then in a place like that as well of such historical importance um that was a highly highly emotional concert um really really incredible experience and I think that was probably you know one of the concerts for me that confirmed yes this is what I want to do this is what I want to do with my life um so that's the one that really sticks out for me. Yeah. That was very, very beautiful. Now, I wonder if you could maybe regale <laughs> us with a story of something perhaps funny or embarrassing that has ever happened to you in a concert or on a stage. Please help us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't think this is a funny story, but it's, um, um, a pretty amazing story um, that I like to think about sometimes. 
and it's again with the National Youth Orchestra. So a lot of stuff happened then. We were playing um, a concert, maybe in Birmingham or Manchester or somewhere, in you know a major concert hall somewhere. Um, and at the end of the program, we had Ravel La Valse, and there are these little um, first oboe solos near the beginning. These little solos. Um, and I was sitting third oboe coronglay in that concert. And the poor girl who was playing first oboe, her oboe just like seized up while she was playing this little, the first little solo. And we still don't know till this day what happened, but she, she panicked because obviously her oboe just stopped working. And then the guy who was sitting on second oboe, it was incredible. Within like three seconds or less, he reacted and started playing for her, you know, instead of her because she'd stopped. And he was so nervous at having done that, that he froze as well. <gasps> and, and the girl, the other side of me, because I said before the National Youth Orchestra is huge. We have like eight oboes. The girl on the other side of me who had, you know, first and second oboe bars, she then started playing. So, I mean, it was this, <laughs> this incredible, um, like sort of wave within the oboe section of one thing going wrong and then the, and then the next person stepping in. It was, I mean, it was absolutely amazing to see how quickly people can react in a, in a sort of emergency situation like that. Um, and I was sort of sitting in the middle of these two people, like, what the hell just happened? Um, and then, you know, sort of tutti passages were coming back. And um, so I I passed my oboe um, down to first oboist and said, take my oboe for the rest of the performance. And she gave me hers and I had a quick look at it. No idea what the hell was happening there. I mean, it was just like from nothing, completely jammed. And I thought, you know what? This is the last piece of the concert. She's playing on my oboe. She's got more important stuff to do. I'm just sitting here on third oboe playing in the loud tutti bits. So, you know, it's okay. Um, yeah, so that was... Yeah, not really funny, but but um, <laughs> a, a weird, a really, really weird moment, but kind of amazing. And the next day we had a concert in another concert hall, and uh, Paul Daniel was the was the conductor for that um, uh, course, and he said at the the general rehearsal for the next concert, "Bravo, oboes for last night," and everyone around us looked at us like what's he what's he talking about like what happened nobody so nobody noticed. noticed yeah nobody noticed <laughs> miraculous <laughs> so then I just so that makes me think you know if there's like a crazy thing like that that happens and nobody noticed not even the people around you the small little mistakes you make in a concert is anybody really noticing probably not yes I agree so you know passing <laughs> over around and all this stuff you know, <laughs> <could even do. laughs> yeah so everyone's that like be... shivering and shaking. In the I mean, there was definitely some shivering and shaking going on, but uh, but successfully got to the end of Laval's. Um, um, this also explains why we are the way we are, because mm. things can just stop working at any moment for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. I think, you know, there's this whole element of we're kind of actors in a way. You kind of have to pretend that everything's fine, even if it feels like it isn't. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> the, the, the funny thing about that is that I recently had to play La Valse again, and it was the first time since that event. <laughs> so about 15 years later. 
and I was playing first oboe and obviously my head was just spinning. It was saying, your robot is going to seize up now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, next time Lavaz comes around, I'll, I'll be really positive about it. I'll say whatever oh happens. God. That's so we'll Get to the end. <laughs> <laughs> your mind is like, what's the worst that could possibly happen? Oh, that thing that happened last time? That's the worst. Yeah, that could that's happen. the worst. <laughs> I mean, luckily, it didn't happen to me in my oboe book. Goodness me! I mean, it's good to know that you know friends or colleagues around you can just step in. I mean, you probably know that amazing video from London Symphony Orchestra, Olivier, and the. I love that it's the descent into hell. It's <laughs> part of the Berlioz work. It's called the descent into hell. Yeah, it definitely was. <laughs> but amazing! I mean, it's so incredible how fast. Rosie passes him an oboe and he just plays it like nothing happened. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I kind of, I mean, I obviously don't wish for stuff to go wrong in orchestral concerts because it's super stressful, but sometimes you kind of do just to see what will happen. Right. <laughs> yeah. It'll make a good story later to tell in a podcast. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Um, I'd say follow your gut because especially when you start studying and you're choosing a teacher or a university to go to, that is absolutely the moment to listen to what you want and what feels right. Because, you know, other people are going to tell you, oh, you have to go to this teacher or you have to go um, to this festival or whatever it is if it doesn't feel right to you and something else feels better to you or more attractive or just feels like it's the correct thing then apply for it and just do that um you know there was there are points during my studies where um I was looking for something different and like when I left the UK to go and study in France and that I could have easily just passed it off as no that's too difficult that's too much of an upheaval that's too much change um loads of excuses but no I went and did it and I'm so happy I took the risk so I'd say whatever feels right go for it that's amazing advice Melanie Robin <laughs> this went by way too fast thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish you're very very welcome I had lots of fun <laughs> Okay, so I don't even have to tell you to go check out our social media because you're already gonna because you're so curious about our new logo and you're gonna tell us how cute it is. And then you're going to like look at all these fabulous posts for our Halloween redecorating contest and go, oh, today's the 15th. I got to go get that in or pat yourself on the back because you already submitted it. And then you're going to come back on the 16th to start voting on all the fabulous read entries. Galit, who's on the next episode. Why are you so bossy? You're like bossing around our listeners right now. I don't know. It's 6.30 a.m. So <laughs> this is what you get. If you're lucky I'm awake. So uh, you're really going to want to tune into our next interview. It is with Morbi Ron, who is a bassoonist who um, – talks about his journey to and then from the Berlin Philharmonic. And we had just an incredible conversation with Moore and we are pumped 
to share it with all of you on November 1st. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads. And if you got to put a sign on your door to get it done, you put that sign on your door, baby. And make them scary. Oh, scary. Yes. Enter the contest. (laughs) 